I had a particular employee that got a group of four or five other folks, and they were very, very upset with some changes that I had made. And I ended up with more reviews on Glassdoor than I had employees. It then started to snowball. Uh, the board called and said, listen, we know that, you know, we're keeping up with all the changes that you're making as you're telling us in advance that these are the things that are coming, but we think you probably ought to do, you know, some of the following things. I ended up getting terminated from that job. And then I got some press written that became a very, very visible story. And so not only do I have to deal with the fact that I don't have this job and that I work so hard to get to, now I don't ever get a chance to go back. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and that was Keith Leinbach on losing his position as CEO, a position he had been determined to achieve ever since he was a small town kid in Ohio. It was a devastating blow at the time, prompted by criticism regarding an allegedly toxic corporate culture. As doors within the corporate world closed, Keith had no other choice but to look elsewhere towards aspirations that had long since been neglected, buried decades before. It's an engaging story that encompasses the themes of loss, learning, and renewal. And it's one that I'm looking forward to sharing. But let's go back to Ohio. I grew up in a town, I call it a little Ohio farm town because I think it's easier to visualize. Probably 18,000 people in Northern Ohio. It's, it's farming, but it's also light industrial. So in Northern Ohio, particularly in this era, there are a lot of companies that were there to, to service the auto industry out of Detroit. And so light industry was in this little town in Norwalk, Ohio. It probably still is to some extent. With the way the auto industry has changed, it's impacted this little town quite a bit. It was a blue collar town and um, most of my buddies either lived on a farm or lived in town and their parents worked for, you know, one of the little industries in town. And right down the street, like literally two blocks from my house, they canned sauerkraut. You know, you open a can of sauerkraut, it, it smells pretty strong. And I grew up smelling sauerkraut from Stokely's. My parents moved to that town because my dad had an opportunity to be a principal of a local elementary school. My mom was was a teacher and my dad was a principal. And so they found an opportunity in this little town, moved to Newark, Ohio to be uh, the principal of League Street Elementary School. How about that? My dad had stopped being the principal, you know, before I went to that school. He had then moved on to a vocational school, which he ultimately became the superintendent of. And my mom worked at a, at a different school in town. In fact, when I was... When I was growing up until I was about in junior high, my mom had left her role as an educator to, to raise the family and then went back to school and got a graduate degree and wanted to be a, a librarian in the school system. She was around all the time when I was growing up. She was there to raise the family. Yeah, so education was a, a big part of growing up. And it's all in the process of, you know, getting an opportunity to go to college and uh, get a good job, you know, graduate and raise a family and be a, a good, positive, contributing member of society. Watching my dad, I just kind of learned that my dad was a leader. I was always really proud he was the superintendent of vocational school, right? It was a pretty big job. And because he was my dad, you know, by default, that's what I wanted to do. 
I remember I was probably in high school. My dad told me that he was, you know, it was conversational. It wasn't like he was giving me a lecture on leadership. Part of that conversation, he shared with me that every organization that he'd ever been part of, he he had become the leader of. And I just thought, okay, well, if that's what dad did, then that's what I'm going to do. And so I became the president of my of my high school class. Do you remember like how you campaigned for that position and, and what that was like and what your classmates thought of you? I was a nerd with glasses and a terrible bull haircut. And I think the kids in my class were just like, you know, whatever idiot wants that role, you know, it's, it's all about raising money so that we got enough money to fund like a cool prom. I, I guess I was fortunate enough to, to be able to, to win. I would tell you, it became my orientation. Like I, it's kind of the way I, I operated. I just thought, oh, dad was a leader. I'm going to be a leader. I don't really know what that means, but I should probably be in leadership roles. But I remember very distinctly one time, I was probably maybe very early in high school or maybe even junior high, I was at a camp. And the camp counselors had done like a, a round table and everybody you know, put a little, they just wrote a little note on a little piece of paper and then dropped it into everybody's individual little bucket they had in front of them, you know, had your name on it. And so not only the camp counselors, but, but everybody in, at the camp, you know, you wrote something down and said, you know, like to Jeremy, you got a great smile or, or whatever, right? You just, you put that in the bucket. And I remember, you know, having those types of comments, but I remember one of the, the camp leaders had written on this slip, future leader. And I thought, huh, that's weird. Somebody's recognized that in me, you know, just kind of stuck with me. Maybe it was a coincidence that this camp counselor wound up writing future leader on his slip of paper. But after speaking to Keith, that seems unlikely. It comes across more like a timely affirmation to get the ball rolling in the right direction. The industrial hum of a factory town, combined with an occasional whiff of sauerkraut, creates a humble backdrop for Keith's childhood. But the way he speaks about his parents, about his community, exudes a palpable sense of pride and reverence for the town and people that raised him. Ohio farm country is an American heartlands, scattered with maple trees and tucked away Amish towns. Opportunity could flourish within it, but he knew that for the opportunity he was yearning for, he would have to search outside of it. As you went through high school and nearing college, what did you think you wanted to do knowing that you had maybe this gift of being able to lead and, and other people believing in that ability? I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was good in math and science. And so my parents said, hey, if you're good in math and science, like, why don't you go talk to your high school counselor and, we, you know, we'll sort out what might be a good direction for your major. And she said, hey, what, you know, maybe maybe you should go into engineering. It'll take advantage of, of your strengths. And as you get into the program, you can decide if it's really a good fit for you or not. I just remember lots of conversations with my parents about, you know, what, what am I going to do? And my dad, he just always would share with me like, hey, there, there's all kinds of jobs out there. Many of them are very fulfilling. Why don't you pick one that's fulfilling and also makes a lot of money? 
that stuck with me as well. I was like, okay, well, I think engineers probably make pretty good money. So if I follow that path, then we'll, we'll see where it goes. I remember growing up and I would have these great daydreams about buying businesses. I can remember sitting in a McDonald's one time, like evaluating somehow if this seems like a, a cool business to buy. And then I think, wow, if you buy businesses, those are big dollars. And if you could turn around and sell them, those are big dollars. It's not like trying to arbitrage with a newspaper, right? You're going to make four, four cents on your route. But it was just contributing to all these thoughts in my brain about what I wanted to do and, and how I wanted to do it. And what it really was, those are all very entrepreneurial and they're not really CEO oriented, which is, is, which is the leadership angle of it. And when I look back now, I think, man, I was telling myself, be an entrepreneur, be an entrepreneur. And what I had crisscrossed that with was my wiring that said, you know, you, you need to go lead and lead. And if you're going to be in a business, that means you need to be the CEO. You had these dreams of being something in business, but you continued with your engineering degree. Was there ever a point where you're like, oh, wait, maybe this engineering stuff isn't what I want to do? <laughs> yeah. Well, for the first time was taking uh, my second semester of physics and I could not understand a single thing. And I remember I literally I'd come back home and try to do the homework and none of it made any sense. I'm like, what am I doing? When I was a junior or senior, I remember my professors said, hey, there's you know lots of companies that come on campus and they interview for co-op jobs, which means that one quarter you would go to school and one quarter you would go work for the, the company that had hired you to be a co-op student. And in that role, they would give you some engineering responsibilities and you could get a sense of what it was really going to be like in the real world to be an engineer. I got hired by General Motors, the division called Truck and Bus, and it was out of Pontiac, Michigan. And so I went to Pontiac and I show up for the first day and I, I meet you know the, the crew and I get assigned to the windshield wiper team. And I'm one of like 15 people. And all we did was like go from meeting to meeting to talk about the, the blades fit and what's the wiper speed and does it integrate with the windshield? And you had to meet with the windshield team. And I'm like, what? We've got the wiper switch, the wiper motor. We've got the linkage assembly, the two wiper arms, as well as your reservoir tank with its pump and sensor. I thought I was going to like get a clay model in a wind tunnel and I was going to be building trucks. So I was completely delusioned, man. And now all of a sudden I'm in my senior year in mechanical engineering and I've invested all this time and money. And at the same time, I'm like, I, I might as well just get the degree. Like, well, I don't even know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to be a mechanical engineer. You said you had a stupid hat business. I had a stupid hat business. I call it a stupid hat business. It, I didn't try to make stupid hats, but I made hats. I was just always looking for a hustle, man. I thought there's got to be a way to make money. One time I was planning to go to a Bob Seger concert. And so I thought, man, I bet I could get some hats and stitch Bob Seger 1987 or whatever it was into those hats. I could have them you know, custom embroidered. And I could sell those in the parking lot. I bet I could make some money. And so I bought these hats and they get delivered to me. And instead of saying apostrophe 87 Bob Seeger, it says 87 apostrophe Bob Seeger. And I'm like, 
man, the hats are all wrong. And so I'm like, well, concert's tomorrow. Like they got here just in time. So I called the place and I said, hey man, the hat showed up, but they're all wrong. And he said, okay, when's the concert? And I'm like, tomorrow. And he's like, well, send back whatever you don't sell and I'll just give you a credit. And so like, that is the greatest deal in the world. Because if I sell them, that's awesome. If I don't, like I don't have extra inventory. <laughs> I probably sold a couple hundred hats and then I sold, send the other 300 back because they were stitched wrong. And I, I'd made some money. I'm like... Dang, now I just got a taste of that. That rush of, I put together a little plan here. I thought I could make some money. And and guess what? I just did it. Like people will buy these things. And I pay five and they pay 15. That means I put 10 in my pocket. And now it's just a matter of scale. Like if I could do it at one concert, why couldn't I do it at 100 not quite selling high rises, but I understood at that point then like, man, it's pretty rewarding. And I really enjoyed the thrill of actually making money from an idea that I had. That's where I got my, my greatest thrills and what I really wanted to do. When I graduated from college, my roommate and fraternity brother, Johnny Matino, people would ask, hey, what do you want to be? Now you're graduating. What do you, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a CEO. And Johnny had heard this enough that he gave me a gift, you know, graduating. And I opened it up and it's a name plaque that sits like on your desk and had my name inscribed in it. And it said, Keith Leinbach, CEO. There's a common thread that runs through Keith's youth. The lighthearted CEO plaque his friend Johnny gifted him, the slip of paper that his camp counselor scrawled on, his ability to lead wasn't hiding in the woodwork. For the record, mechanical engineers are crucial for society. It couldn't function without them. In fact, 1988, the year Keith graduated, was also the year that NASA resumed space shuttle launches following the devastating Challenger explosion in 1986. If anything, the demand for engineers would have been higher than ever before. But this wasn't Keith's path, and he knew it. Sure, the plaque was a friendly nudge, but the desire to secure a position of CEO was a permanent fixture in his mind. So your your first opportunity was at Accenture. So how did you start climbing that company? Remember, I'm coming out of school now with a, a mechanical engineering degree in 1988. One of uh, my, my good buddies who I respect a ton, still do, he had a chemical engineering degree and he went to work for Arthur Anderson. And I said, Spud, what, what in the world are you doing? Work for Arthur Anderson, man. He's like, listen, they have this group called MIS Consulting, it's like computers and stuff. And um, it's growing like crazy. And check out the path at Arthur Anderson, man. You work for 10 years, you become a partner. And partners start at 100 grand a year. Like, a, like 10 years from now, you could be making 100 grand. I'm like, well, shoot, if this is good for enough for Spud, that's what I'm doing, man. I'm, I'm going to follow Spud and I'm going to go work for, for Arthur Anderson. That part of the business spun off from the, the tax and accounting part of, of Arthur Anderson and changed their name to Accenture. How did you progress in that company? And, and like, what was it like when you started to get uh, more responsibility? This is a very, very structured environment. Uh, man, I, I laugh now and I've, I've laughed, I've laughed over the years when I tell the stories about like what it was like to start 
We had guys that got sent home the first day. One guy had a pink tie on. You can't wear a pink tie. What are you crazy? And and one person had tasseled wingtips instead of laced up wingtips and got sent home to change their shoes. Right now you go to work and you know people showing up in shorts and t-shirts with holes in them and stuff. Right, so you got to put all that into context when you think about the the level of discipline around growing up through this Accenture environment, which they had built to be very intentional, very competitive and very well known. So there was no mystery, man. You were either, it was either up or out. You're either going to get promoted or you're out. You don't, there's no such thing as a, a 10 year person in this title, right? Except for partner, right? If, if you're still a manager after, you know, X years, you're, you're out. There's no permanent manager role. And it always felt like as long as you're kind of following the program, there's a net under the tightrope, but you're walking this tightrope and you're expected to, uh, to get to the other side. And if you fall off the tightrope, it was okay. As long as you played by the rules, there was a net. And so if your aspiration wasn't to grow, there was no place for you. It fit my programming fine and probably heavily reinforced that, that, it is okay to run over anybody in the process. In fact, that was an acceptable part of the culture there that you could run over, you know, to some extent you could run over clients and you could run over your peers and the winner was going to get promoted. And it wasn't like one out of a hundred. It was, you know, these whole waves of groups and, and people would drop out all the time. I thought if I do better than you know, my peer sitting next to me, I'm going to get promoted and that person is going to get left out. And so it wasn't about doing anything to sabotage their careers. It's just knowing that you had to do better than that resource to get to the next level. Like when I, when I would move about the office and this became something that I just carried, like if I was in my office or, or in my cubicle and I needed to, I was going to go to the break room and grab a cup of coffee or I was going to go to the bathroom or I was going to go whatever. If someone saw me in the hallway they were going to see me moving fast because I clearly had some place that I had to be urgently. And that was part of my shtick, man. I would, <laughs> I would get to like wherever I'm going, like, hey, man, that was kind of fast. And, you know, people would go past me. And they're like, man, you're in a hurry. You got something important going on. I'm like, holy man, if you only knew. Now, you wouldn't believe it if I told you that I could run like the wind blows. If I was going somewhere, I was running. You know, that kind of stuff. And I just... I just always moved fast to kind of differentiate myself so people knew, man, that guy's on the go. Holy, he might have a million things going on. Like, I can't figure out what to do to fill my day. And this guy's got so much that he's got to run between, you know, between meetings and in, in the hallway. What the heck? It seems like a, a culture that rewarded your like tenacity and, and your drive. But after 10 years, what did you, what did you think? Well, I was there for eight years. I was two years away from making partner. And so it was a really, really important time for me to figure out what I was going to do. Because at the time, I think the average partner starting salary was about $600,000. And I thought, man, I'm only two years away from that. But what am I trading? Like, I do not enjoy this at all. And for the eight years I was there, seven years, I was 100% out of town. That means on Sunday night, I would fly to wherever my client was. And on Friday afternoon, I'd fly back home to wherever I lived. This accumulative effect over eight years is that people just quit calling me. Like, dude, you're never around anyway. So I lost connection with, with my friends. My girlfriend doesn't think I was so cool anymore. 
you had their phone numbers written down on, on literally on your phone or in your phone book. And I remember going home one time and um, mom said, hey, can you update me with your new address? Because I would always have an address where where I lived, like on the weekends, and then an address that was where I, I lived during the week. And so my mom had written down in the back of the phone book. And for my sisters, it was, you know, their, their names and the one phone number and the phone number they've had for the last eight years. And for me, there was a line crossed through it and there were eight strike throughs. And, you know, this is just like the, I'm just looking at it, like, that's the history of where I've been and the reason no one can track me down because even my mom doesn't know like what my phone number is anymore. Like, it's crazy. So I'm like, I, I can't do this. And the other thing is I, my dad was around when I was growing up. I wanted to be around when my kids were growing up. And I knew at some point I, I would have to settle down and, and I, I wanted to have a family. And I knew there wasn't going to be a good fit. And so I called the partner that I worked for, Tom Fisher. And uh, Tom answered the phone. He said, I say, Tom, it's Keith. And he goes, you're calling me to quit, aren't you? And I'm like, dude, how did you know? And he said, man, I, I, I want you to stay, but... You know, I just tell, like we talk all the time. I, I can tell that this thing just isn't adding up for you. And so I ended up leaving. How did you feel leaving? Like, was it liberating? Was it bittersweet? What were your feelings surrounding that? Straight out of prison. It's like you get your walking papers and you pick up your your jeans at the front desk like when you checked them in eight years ago and you slip back into your your comfortable clothes and i'm like holy crap man i'm out there aren't a lot of memories in my own life that i could compare to being freed from prison but that statement is a fantastic articulation of how liberated keith felt when he finally left accenture he had been walking the corporate tightrope for eight years and was beginning to realize the absence of joy that existed in his life. Everything was in constant motion. Even the slightest lag from one room to the next threatened the risk of falling behind. Addresses and numbers were changing so often, it was as though he was a successful vagabond, net still firmly secured beneath his rope. But Keith's unbridled ambition was acting as a gust of wind. He was teetering on his tightrope, but not because he wasn't succeeding. He was just preparing for the next forward plunge into something else, something that he could begin on his own. I left to actually start a cigar bar in Southern California. And, you know, timing was just awful. One is a stupid idea, but the, the second is... Uh, the smoking laws were all changing. And so I'm trying to start a, a, a cigar bar where you're, you know, you're sitting inside smoking cigars and all the California smoking laws are changing. You couldn't smoke indoors anymore. A limited number of businesses where people can smoke indoors may soon get even shorter. Tonight, the city council may vote to remove bars from the list of places that still allow smoking. This comes with support. So brilliant timing. It actually turned out to be a blessing because like, really is that my career now I'm going to be a own a cigar bar unfortunately it fell apart but when it fell apart so did I like okay what am I going to do now man I wanted to be an entrepreneur and so it became very very tricky and I just realized this thing isn't going to work and so I got a call from a recruiter at one point and he said hey there's a there's an opportunity in the bay area 
And um, maybe you should check that out. Now, at the same time, I also thought, hey, this would be a great opportunity for me to get my my MBA. Like I'm, I'm out and I could go follow the MBA path. And my buddy Spud, and uh, he's like, dude, I'm going to be an investment banker. This is the business that buys businesses. And all of a sudden I realized I'd found it. The business where you buy businesses. The thing that you'd been dreaming about in McDonald's. Yeah. So I'm like, holy crap, I need to get my degree. I'm a follow spud again. At this point, it's late 90s and the internet is is on fire. And as my buddy Spud told me, who's now an investment banker, you could write dot com on a dollar bill and sell it for two bucks. If you've got a chance to go work for an internet company, you can always come back and try something else later, man. Investors were so excited about the progress of the internet that they invested in pretty much any tech company with a pulse. They stopped caring about whether or not a company was profitable or at least could eventually become profitable. Then I got a call from a recruiter and he said, hey, I've got this opportunity for you at a startup company a small company and something that we could grow and and build. And I think I was like employee number 42 or something like that. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go do that, man. I'm going to put, put on the shelf, my MBA aspiration and my, my pursuit of buying businesses. I'm going to go give this thing a shot. And so that was it, man. I packed up my stuff in Manhattan beach, sat down in my empty living room, shed a few tears and, and drove my 911 convertible to San Francisco. Off I went. I also moved in with my girlfriend, who is now my wife. That was a big positive. And we had tons and tons of great experiences in San Francisco. And then like the whole work side of it, that was the fantastic part. That was the fascinating thing. Millionaires were minted by the hundreds every day. Companies were going public and people were making money hand over fist. I was just consumed by that. I just thought it was awesome. And, and our whole aspiration at Innsweb as a path to, to generate capital, you know, you go through initial public offering. And in that process, great wealth is unleashed. How did you create wealth within this company? Because you accelerated that company from the ground to like tens of millions of dollars. In the investment banking world, as you're looking for bankers to take you public, there is definitely a, um, there's a tiered structure of like who's the creme to the creme and, and who, you know, are other lower tier providers. And certainly Goldman Sachs is the brand of excellence. Like if you're going to rubber stamp your deal with a Goldman Sachs underwriter, welcome to big homes and fancy cars, man. It's going to be great. Goldman wanted to underwrite our deal. And so we took that company public in 1999 with a billion dollar valuation. That was the the peak peak of our valuation. Yeah. Billion dollars. You know, I joined the company, you know, handing out shares measured in, in tens of thousands. Like I, I had a couple hundred thousand shares of, of stock. And now all of a sudden I look at my bank statement one day and I'm, I'm rich, you know, on paper, I, I hadn't sold it, but on paper, I've got a lot of money. And I remember I told my mom, Hey mom, we went public. I'm worth $5 million. And she's like, now how's the weather out there today? And I said, it, it's good. It's like it always is here. Um, you know, it's got foggy in the morning, but I've just made millions of dollars. And she said, you know, I think we're going to do a big roast for dinner. And I said, wow, what, what is the disconnect here? 
And, you know, then years go by and I realize what my mom was was telling me it wasn't a comfortable place for her. I didn't grow up and you brag about wealth. There was no one around to brag about wealth. And, and do you think she cared? She didn't know how to absorb it. She didn't know how to react to it. And I didn't I, I didn't know how to share it. And it was new for me, too. And so um, I just remember thinking, geez, I, I thought my I thought my mom would be super stoked for me. Right. She isn't even acknowledging that that even happened is kind of a, a marked point for me. This thing that I, I thought that I'd spent, you know, at this point, 30 or 34 years or something. And now all of a sudden, like nobody cares. Like the only one I was trying to impress is my mom. And she, she's literally talking about what she's having for dinner, right? She couldn't care less. Actually, she could care a lot, but it's just not what you do. Like you, you don't ever share that kind of stuff. Did that, did that make you think less of that achievement? For sure. Yeah. It made me question like, well, I mean, I thought people would be excited for me. What I realized, man, this is an important lesson, like for everybody and ongoing, no one is really excited for your accomplishments except for you. They're probably jealous and issuing you mentally some ill will. Like not, not my mom, of course, but you know, I talked to friends and, um, you know, my friends didn't just make millions of dollars. And I remember telling people and they're almost like, barely even excited. I'm like, what's going on? And I just, for me, like on the other side of it, when people tell me stuff, I've got to decide whether I, I care or not. And I kind of grew up in this, there, there was no dwelling on accomplishment. We're not going to call you an idiot when you fail. And we're not going to treat you like a hero when you succeed. I had to make a decision for myself. Like, Hey, how are you actually going to show up? Do you, are you going to be the guy that's excited? Or are you going to be the guy that's treating other people like, like you're being treated? You're excited about your accomplishments and no one cares, man. Don't be that guy. I feel like part of the way you can have people invested in in your story is by giving back, right? Like sharing some of that wealth. And do you have any inclination to be like, you know, just got $5 million. Everyone gets a new set of golf clubs or like I'm taking everyone out. Yeah, because I found that there was more of a way to show it off than it was to to gain some sort of acknowledgement of it, like acknowledgement in a positive way. Like, sure, I could have a fancy parties and give stuff away and people would be stoked, but you know, they're just stoked because they got something. They're not stoked for me. But listen, this is 1999. So fast forward a year and the bubble had popped. Technology stocks began losing value faster than they had gained it. My wife also worked for uh, an internet company that had gone public at the same time. This is a big deal. And then you fast forward a year and a half later, uh, Innsweb had ended up moving out of the Bay Area to Sacramento to, to reduce costs. I left because I didn't want to move to Sacramento. Like her stock, the company had gone up to $400 a share. I mean, this was one of the super darlings. And, and then it fell down to like two bucks. And Innsweb did the same thing, man. It fell down to like two bucks. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at my my, my Schwab statement that used to say I was rich. And I wasn't rich anymore. <laughs> I, I wasn't rich at all. This is the craziness of it all, man. So we bought a house. Um, you know, before this, I had I had no money. And so all these loans were coming out that as long as you had a heartbeat, you could get a loan. I bought my house. It was 500,000 bucks. I bought it for zero money down and I paid some big interest rate to do that. The next year it had appraised for $600,000. And so that meant I had 20% equity and I could refinance the thing. So now all of a sudden I'd come into this money. I had a ton of money. I could have paid the house off. Like it literally could have just sold some of the stock and paid the house off and been completely out of debt and probably put a lot of money in the bank, but that's not how I was wired. 
I, I just, I, I didn't know. Like no one was there to, there's no one there teaching you. Like there's no one there helping you manage your money. All these people go from zero to rich literally overnight and no one knows what to do with it. And very few people sold. And so, you know, I'm looking at my Schwab account. It's got five grand in it. it used to have 5 million in it. And, and um, I didn't even pay off my house. And now I've got a mortgage for $500,000. And I'm like, feast of famine. Just kind of the way it was back in those days. Plummeting from $5 million in the bank to 5000 Keith had left his one-way track upward at Accenture and had buckled onto the stock market roller coaster. As the notorious dot-com bubble swole, his success with InSweb skyrocketed. In this period between 1995 and 2000, the Nasdaq Composite rose a whopping 400% and devastated millions of employees in October 2002 when the market crashed, shriveling it to levels beneath its starting index. It would have been nice for Keith to get a small patent on the back when the nation's leading investment bank evaluated his company at $1 billion. However, Win or lose, his parents' only expectation was that he work hard. His friends and family's support did not depend on his career success. This proved to be a lifeline for Keith later on, as we see his ambition takes him to even higher highs and lower lows. I've left this company because it moved to Sacramento. The economy was such that I, I'm like, man, I, I'm not doing anything entrepreneurial. I, I need to go find a job. And so I ended up with a company called BEA Systems. And I worked there for seven years and ended up selling that for, I think, $18 billion in 2007. Billion? With a B? With a B, man. It was a oh big God. deal. Uh, and I joined another company, also had a, a number of different roles, ended up having an opportunity to help grow that company as we expanded nationally. I took over the operation in Nashville and we built a business that had a thousand people. And because we were growing so quickly and the mayor's agenda was about bringing business back downtown, we were on a first name basis. You have to have the mayor come over and have lunch with my managers. You know, like, when does that ever happen? So basically, you're just having success after success. I want to take this up to this dream that you've had since you were a kid of being a CEO. I had joined the board of another company called ESG. They said, hey, we're looking for someone to run this business. And there'd been an active search for quite a while and said, we want you to be the CEO. And I thought, man, I would like to be the CEO, but I don't really want to be the CEO in Cincinnati. At that point, we lived in Colorado. My kids were, you know, in elementary school and middle school. And like, I want to be around for my family. That's, that's what I grew up with. My dad was always around. He was my baseball coach, the pack leader in, in Cub Scouts and, and all those things. I want to do the same for, for my family. And I just spent the last several years just flying around the planet as the head of operations for the prior company. And, and so I'm like, man, I don't think I really want to do it. I'm not going to move my family. But the short story is the board ended up talking me into it and said, you know, for a year, why don't you go do this and we'll help get some things straightened around, put us back on the right trajectory. And so I did. And about the same time that uh, my one year was wrapping up, I got a call from a headhunter that was looking for a CEO of a big company. I'm not talking about GE size, but, uh, you know, much bigger than the one that I was CEO of. I mean, this was a real CEO job. 
talked to my family again. I said, all right, well, here's what's on the table now. I've got a chance to be the CEO and leader of, of this other thing, but it's out of Phoenix. I'm not asking everybody to move to Phoenix, but dad's going to be gone. It's probably a five-year gig. You know, I've got millions of shares of, of stock granted to me in this offer and making a, a lot of money in terms of, you know, salary and bonus. You know, let's just do the math. Like if it's 5 million shares of stock that I've been granted and I can raise the, the value of the company by $20 a share, that's just not life-changing money. That, that'll alter generations. Off I went to my, uh, to my new CEO gig. What was your leadership style to get this company where you needed to go? Well, the board asked me the same question in the interview process, and I told them very specifically, I'm very purpose-driven, right? I am results-oriented, and it is both my greatest strength and my Achilles heel. I do have a tendency to run people over in the process of getting to results. They said, listen, you know, over the course of many discussions, one of the things that was shared with me is I, we, we expect that probably everybody there needs to go. You'll find some keepers along the way, but probably everybody needs to go and know that we know that. And I said, listen, in that process, of course, this is a turnaround. This is going to be highly disruptive. And they said, yeah, that's welcome to the NFL. And so we had some, some great successes and I had their support right up until the point where I didn't. I had a particular employee that got a group of four or five other folks and they were very, very upset with some changes that I had made. And I ended up with more reviews on Glassdoor than I had employees. It then started to snowball. Uh, the board called and said, listen, we know that, you know, we're keeping up with all the changes that you're making as you're telling us in advance that these are the things that are coming, but we think you probably ought to do, you know, some of the following things. Long story short, I, I ended up getting terminated from that job. In my exit, what an unscrupulous person uh, did was then decided it would be awesome to share what they thought were the details of that exit with a reporter. And then I got some press written that became a very, very visible story. And I could no longer write my own narrative. And not only is it tremendously humiliating and embarrassing to leave the position that you'd worked so hard to get to, but to do it in such a disgraceful way and then not be able to write your own narrative. And in these days, the worst part is when someone meets you, everybody looks you up on Google. As soon as I tell somebody my name, like I know the next thing they're going to do is go Google me. And the first story that pops up is, is this awful story about me that was written that isn't accurate, but it's the story that's out there now. Not only do I have to deal with the fact that I don't have this job that I thought I wanted forever and ever, and that I worked so hard to get to, now I don't ever get a chance to go back. The reality is no one's ever going to hire me. <laughs> From the mayor of Nashville to the president of the United States, anyone who had known Keith's background could recognize his success and prowess as a CEO. But now, just a 10-second Google search could minimize all of his accomplishments to a single fabricated headline. Though this was a tremendous loss for Keith, his experience reflects a pivotal moment in history. For the very first time, men in power all over the nation were being forced to examine their workplace behavior scrupulously. 2017, the year Keith was fired, was the year that Harvey Weinstein's investigation catapulted the Me Too movement. 
women were not only sharing their experiences with sexism by the millions, but even more groundbreaking, people were beginning to listen to them. According to the article discussed, many of the employees speaking out against Keith were women reporting accounts of sexism by a manager he had hired. Whereas in years prior, these complaints would have likely been dismissed and a man's career would have gone on uninterrupted. 2017 was a year that sexism was finally being considered a serious offense. Keith had to look at those comments in the face and give them the consideration and thought they deserved. Though the exasperated clickbait narrative being spread deviated from the truth of Keith's intentions, the importance his company emplaced on the collective voices of women was unmistakably necessary. The internet had hurled Keith off the corporate tightrope and he had hit the ground cold and hard. But eventually, he would get up and start discovering his own unique path to fulfillment. How was it trying to find another job after this? Awful in a word. Probably the two worst experiences for me is when my dad died, I was pretty young. And then this getting fired so publicly. You know, when my dad died, it's not like I killed my dad, right? My dad died of lymphoma. You know, just one day he wasn't there anymore. And then getting terminated, it's very final as well. There's no renegotiating. It's it's over. But in this case, I did cause it. I'm a CEO. I'm accountable for everything, good news and bad news. And so whether I agree with the reasons or whether the facts of the story are real or not, which they're not, doesn't really matter, right? I could have done it differently. I could have controlled it differently. I could have taken different actions that would have resulted in different things for sure. And so I did control it. So now all of a sudden, it's not only is it final, but it is of my own doing. And the grief that goes along with it is now accompanied with shame top of that you know you get calls from recruiters all the time hey i saw on linkedin looks like you freed up are you available we've got a cool opportunity it's a great ceo gig we think you'd be an awesome fit would you be interested in talking about it first thing i would just say to people is have you googled me and they're like no you know we just thought you'd be a great fit you're in our database and we thought google me and get back to me (laughs) because as soon as you read the story it doesn't really matter whether it's true or not when you hire me as the ceo everybody's going to google me they're going to read the story and then the first thing that you know that i'm going to have to do is try to rewrite the story for everybody to explain it all. And no one's, no board's going to hire me. So anyway, I would have that conversation and then I'd never get a call back. And then I realized, all right, man, let's do a little soul searching here and figure out what it is you really want to do. Because the CEO gig, man, it is, it's intoxicating from a personal gratification deal, but it's at the sacrifice of everything else. One of my old mentors said to me, dude, you're a hustler. Why are you looking for another CEO gig? You don't want to be a CEO. CEO gig is not what it used to be, man. This is also actually an awful job. And you're a hustler. You're an entrepreneur, man. Why don't you go build a business or buy one or figure something out along those lines? And the second thing that happened to me, all three of my kids individually and unprovoked came up to me. And they say, hey, dad, I know this probably isn't cool. It's not what I'm supposed to say, but man, am I glad you got fired. That was the best thing ever. I think it's just all of a sudden I'm around again. We don't benefit from the fact that you're a CEO. You're always gone. Why don't you find a gig where you're going to be home? And I coupled that up with, hey, Keith, you're a hustler. And I thought, you know what? I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I actually written myself a note when I graduated from college to be open on my 30th birthday. And I still have this. And one of the things that I, that I wrote in there, my goal for me when I was 30, you better own your own company. And I realized at that point, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't want to be a CEO. 
and I'd got those things confused along the way. And I'd spent a whole career working my way up the, the corporate ladder to become a CEO. And I finally got there and I realized, one, it's not really what I thought. And two, I'm probably not very good at it. Three, I just got myself fired. Four, I'm never going to have another job in the corporate world. And so actually and legitimately thank God for this journey. Everything is a step in the process. Nothing is a destination. And so that's kind of how I took in his drive. It's just so awful knowing that everybody's Googling me and what they're really telling, you know, around the dinner table is, oh yeah, I figured out what that Leinbach guy did, right? You ought to read this article about him. It was so bothering to me that I called a reputation management firm and the guy said to me, yeah, here's the deal, man, 70,000 bucks and we can make sure that thing lands on about the 10th page and it can't disappear, but we can make other things more popular and no one's ever going to search the page 10 to find out about you. And I said, you know what? I'm not doing it. This is part of my story. It really is a step in the journey. It's not my destination. It's hurtful, but I'm not going to make it define me. And so I just said, I'm going to leave it out there, man. I'm going to let everybody read it. I hope they do. And through my family and my faith and my friends, you know, I just found my way through it and then started working on some things that I really did find interesting that really began my entrepreneurial journey. And that's what I'm three and a half years into today. With $70,000, Keith could have made this catastrophic publicity go away. But with a strong sense of integrity and support from his loved ones, he'd eventually overcome his fictitious reputation. He was now unafraid to let recruiters discover his past because he knew that as these doors closed, new ones were opening. Just like a forest fire, sometimes you have to let things burn down to nothing in order for a more prosperous future to flourish. As the ashes of his last position settled into the soil, Keith began growing the life he had always wanted. He was reminded that whether you're the school superintendent or a corporate CEO, leadership didn't have to look one way. He could be a leader doing something he loved. And from the time he was selling mistyped Bob Seeger hats, what he loved was hustling. This was not a failure, but a learning experience that sent him back home to his loving family and trailblazing through the world of entrepreneurship. Now, at this point, I'm back home and I'm unemployed and I'm trying to figure out what to do and managing what feels like a bit of a shambles. I had a friend that had taken one of his kids to college and had stopped by the laundromat. This is a tour of, of the campus. And he had just got back to me and he said, you know, I just got back from campus and this laundromat was packed. Like, I wonder if laundromats make a lot of money. I said, I don't know, man, let me just Google it. That sounds interesting. And so I found a couple of business models and it turns out, hey, man, they said they do make money. That's interesting. And so I kind of got myself fired up for laundromats. Tell my wife, I came across this idea. I've done some research and I think we ought to open some laundromats. And she looked at me like I had 15 heads. She's like, what are you talking about? You're not building laundromats. Tell me what we're trying to accomplish here. And then we kind of walked through it. And, you know, she helped guide some of my thinking. And I shared a lot with her. And where we landed was, hey, if we're thinking the long game here, let's really diversify income because every job's going to come to an end. And it doesn't matter whether you've had the same job for 35 years and retire with the Rolex and the cupcake ceremony. You're done. And so we decided, hey, why don't we diversify our income? And laundromats might be a cool way to do that. If we're playing the long game here, then maybe they do make sense open enough of them. We'll hire some manager and we'll have some scale to it. And that might be a great way to generate income that no one can take away from us. 
was talking to my buddy again, and he was fired up about doing some salon suites. And we've got another friend that has a bunch of car washes. And so we said, hey, let's create a portfolio of these businesses that are interesting to us that we know have great cash flow and are sustainable through economic upturn and downturn and create a diversified income portfolio. And, you know, that's where we're at today. Here are some really important lessons that I've put at the top of the queue to share with folks. If you really are entrepreneurial, go ahead and get started with something. You can start it as a side hustle. That's okay. There are ways to make money after hours or during the weekends or or whatever else, right? Your job doesn't have to be all consuming. And so in our pursuit of laundromats, salon suites, car washes, I went through the franchise process seven different times. I ended up buying into a franchise. And I also bought some businesses. And the other thing I tell people is, if you want to enter, step right into a revenue stream, consider buying a business. And so I ended up buying a company. And this has probably been, of all the businesses that I have now, it is for sure the most successful and probably the most rewarding. And I've grown it over 10x in 18 months, right? And that's by being able to apply to stuff you learn, you know, as you work your way through the corporate world and just just running a business. And it's not because I'm a CEO. Any schmuck could have done what I've done with this business. That's what I tell people now is an easy way to get into a revenue stream is to buy a business. And I use some business brokers now. And I really, really advocate for folks who want to step into a revenue stream. It is the shortest timeline to cash. Investing in a small business like laundromats and car washes seems like a hard 180 for a man who was once a successful corporate leader. One might wonder why Keith didn't shoot his shot with a venture-backed startup. That's probably because Keith has been locked into the corporate mindset and wants to run a safe, sturdy business. This is something that MIT has termed corporate entrepreneurship, which kind of seems like an oxymoron. But regardless, for any aspiring entrepreneur, Identifying when and how to take advantage of an opportunity is no less challenging than walking a tightrope. But as the great Kobe Bryant once said, nobody ever walks a straight line to greatness. And as Keith would tell us from experience, the trick is to be decisive, to dictate your own terms so that the world will dictate them for you. What advice would you give your younger self? I would tell myself to go out into the corporate world and learn but recognize that what is really tugging at you all the time and the reason that you keep tinkering around with side hustles, even though you've got this great job and this great career, you got to evaluate where your heart is at in the corporate world or to be an entrepreneur. And as you're in the corporate world, take the time to stash money away and learn a lot, but then know that there's a point where you're going to eject. And you can either reject to build a business, which has a long timeline to it, or to buy a business from which you can grow. Or while you're in this corporate deal, use the stuff after hours and on the weekends and when you're free to go find opportunities that have got your interest that you're really passionate about and get it launched on the side. The point is, man, you got to kind of be true to yourself. Take Take a while to assess whether you're tied to the income or you're really married to the journey. I told myself this before I started working, right? I I wrote myself a letter to be opened on my 30th birthday and I I just wasn't true to it, right? I I got myself confused on what I was really trying to do, but what I really was after the whole time was to be entrepreneurial. And I think if people can recognize that, then they can start to to figure out how they're going to enter that part of the journey. Keith's early life was defined by structure that of his pragmatic family, his tight-knit community, and even his overly sensible dreams. But as most of us know all too well, 
life tends not to follow the trajectory that we lay out for it. Contrary to how many might feel, what defines us isn't how smoothly our lives are run, but rather how we pick ourselves up and forge on. No one is born knowing exactly how to find these answers. And in the sense, Keith's story is universal. His forcible ejection from the corporate world by a scathing smear campaign was almost as bad as it gets in business. Despite its undeniable influence on his path, Keith didn't let that incident define him. He's living proof that reality is more subjective than we realize, that your attitude defines your truth in your life. An attribute of many joyful people's lives is their ability to restructure their personal narratives on the fly. That's how you make lemons into lemonade, how you turn the worst thing that ever happened to you into a pivotal turning point for the better. In a world marked by tremendous uncertainty, there are words that all of us should heed. Patience, positivity, and compassion always win out in the end. So next time you're faced with an unwelcome surprise, don't panic because your story is certainly not over. And where one chapter ends, another begins. Such is the circle of life. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Don. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Joseph Cho, Matt Fernandez, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, Shannon O'Halloran, Jess DeSena, Sebastian Gazada, Samuel Stenica, and Maura Lynch. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chopla, Mitchell Lynn, Lise Caldwell, Jessica Gung, Zachary Loudermilk Batia, Kylie McCreary, Lauren Pomerantz. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lynn with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lett, Ankita Numbiar, Sarah Hobson, Gary Zeng, and Melody Sopani. Our design and social media team lead is Ling Mu Hu, with support from Tiffany Day, Ayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Carla Ruvalcava, and Alana Donnelly. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Nina Maravich. See more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.com. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.